Well, as they get that sorted out, we are going to do something very unusual this morning. If you have been with us, we have been going through the book of Romans for years now. <laughs> and uh, we've come to a really important juncture in the book. We've wrapped up, or we're wrapping up, right at the tail end of chapter 11. And if you know anything about the book of Romans, when we close 11 and open 12, things change quite a bit. We get to the very most practical uh, uh, part of the letter to the Roman church. So really, what this is, is you've got 11 chapters of really deep theology that undergirds and serves as the foundation of what comes next. And the first word in chapter 12 is, therefore, which means all this, all this theology in the first 11 chapters then becomes the launching point for how we ought to live as Christians. So this is a great time to stop and to really recap where we've been. And so I'm going to do something unusual. Now, I've done it a couple times in the 12 years we've been at church. But what I've done is I've, I've, I've essentially rewritten or summarized the first 11 chapters of Romans. And I'm going to read it to you this morning in first person. I'm going to channel my inner Paul, in other words. Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming the authority of Paul. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to rewrite scripture. The point of this is as follows. For you guys to hear 11 chapters summarized in plain English so as to understand the flow of Paul's thought, where he has been, where he is taking us, so that at the end of this you go, ah, I'm beginning to see it. It's a very complex book, isn't it? It's a hard book. But as we review where Paul has been, I think you're going to come to a greater understanding of it. So really, your Bibles aren't necessary this morning. Um, you can follow along. You'll see on the screen a couple, uh, couple transition points. If you want to follow along, you can. But my suggestion would be just to listen carefully. And if you want to jot down some notes, that's great. But I really just want you to hear the flow of thought that Paul takes us through. So let me begin. My name is Saul. I'm originally from a city called Tarsus in Asia Minor. But my heart has always been in Jerusalem. That's where I was raised a student of Gamaliel the Elder. My resume is as good as you'll find anywhere, descended from Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin and the party of the Pharisees. In regard to zeal for the traditions of my people, I was unmatched. In fact, I spent years pursuing and harassing anyone who followed or even sympathized with the way, that movement led by Yeshua from Nazareth. I put his followers in prison, even some of them in the grave. You can ask the high priest and the council of elders. They'll confirm that what I'm saying is true. Now, I'm not proud of my past, but I was ignorant at the time, spiritually blind to the truth like so many of my fellow kinsmen today. But look at me now, writing from the city of Corinth, surrounded by Greeks, I'm completely a new man. By God's grace, I've submitted all that I have and all that I am to Yeshua, counting everything else as loss. Today I'm known by my Greek name, Paul, and ironically, this Jew of Jews has now been appointed by God to be an apostle to, of all people, the Gentiles. So I live in two worlds, both Jewish and Gentile, and I'm forced to minister in the midst of all the suspicion and hostility that exists between these two people groups. At every turn, it's, at every turn it seems, I'm having to find ways to break down the ethnic and tribal divisions that keep people from loving each other as they should. And to that end, I've spent the last few years going through Macedonia and Achaia, collecting a financial offering from my Greek church plants. 
And I'm hoping soon to travel back to Jerusalem to deliver a precious financial gift to the Jewish saints there. They're suffering greatly right now, being persecuted daily for choosing to follow Yeshua. Perhaps this gift from the Greek churches to the Jerusalem church will finally bring some healing between the two. And perhaps by God's grace, my Jewish brothers will stop looking at me with suspicion too. So many of them think I've turned my back on my heritage, but how wrong they are. This journey that I'm on, my third into the Mediterranean world, is coming to an end. I'll be here in Corinth for a little while longer, but then, Lord willing, I'm off to Jerusalem. I have much bigger plans, by the way, much bigger plans to look to the West. I want to bring the gospel to Spain. Now, I know that's a long way away, but if I can establish another base of operations in a city like Rome, I believe I can bring the good news about Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Rome is an absolute key for any Western mission, in the same way that Antioch served me in planting churches in Asia Minor and Greece. And so the Holy Spirit has led me to write a letter to the believers in Rome. While I haven't been to this great city personally, I know a number of the believers there, and I've heard of their faith, so I pray for them often, hoping that someday I'll be able to visit. I've also heard about some problems that exist in the church in Rome, things I want to address, so I plan to write a substantial letter about the truth of the gospel and to give it to Phoebe, who can then deliver it on her way home to St. Crea. And here's what I want to communicate most to the believers in the city of Rome. I want to explain to them what the righteousness of God looks like, how it's revealed in the gospel, how it's laid hold of by faith alone. We should never be ashamed of the gospel in any way, for I'm convinced that it's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. And now, Romans, I need to start at the beginning if you're going to fully understand the depths of the gospel. And that means starting not with the good news, but with the bad news. Let me call this the book of sin. God's wrath is being poured out on the earth right now. It's being revealed from heaven against all those who are ungodly and unrighteous. Why? Because even though God has made himself known within the conscience of every man and every woman, they actively suppress the truth that he exists. Not only has God made himself known internally, but he's also made himself known to mankind externally. The attributes of God are clearly seen in nature. How can you miss them? You can see it from the ground to the sky and everything in between. It's so obvious that no man has an excuse not to acknowledge God's power and divinity. But here's the problem. Rather than worshiping God and thanking Him for everything, even the very breath in their lungs, men and women instead became foolish in their speculations about the things of life. And in that process of speculation, their hearts have grown very, very dark. They think by rejecting the knowledge of God and propping themselves up as their own personal sovereigns that somehow they've become wise. But the opposite is true. They've become absolute fools. They've chosen to worship finite, corruptible, material creations rather than the infinite, glorious, eternal creator. They've exchanged the truth about God for a foul lie. And there's a price to be paid for that. God is now giving them over to exactly what they lust for in their hearts, All kinds of selfish gratification, things that are impure and shameful. So they do all kinds of violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. Some commit the most unnatural and indecent acts, even burning in lust for others of the same sex. And for that, they suffer the penalty of sin within themselves. 
Sadly, this pattern will continue to lead them down into a spiraling pattern of sin. And as it continues, God abandons them to their foolish thinking and their depravity. Now, let me make this absolutely clear so that you're not misled. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know it. Buried somewhere deep within them, they know that God's justice requires that these things be punished, but they do them anyway. And not only that, to make things worse, they convince others to sin alongside them. Now, let's take a deep breath. We know it's easy to point fingers at other people, so let me bring the discussion back to you and to me, and let's make it personal. Are you one of these people who runs around judging everybody else? If so, are you sure that you're not judging yourself in that process? Don't you do some of the very same things? So how do you expect to escape the judgment of God? Don't take lightly the kindness of God. Don't you see how patient and long-suffering he's been towards you? That kindness is designed to lead you to repentance. So lay aside your arrogance and your stubbornness. That's only going to make things worse for you in the end. Listen to me here. Pay close attention. No one who sins will escape the judgment of God. Be warned. When it comes to his wrath, God doesn't play favorites. He will judge the secrets of every man, first among the Jews and then among the Gentiles. If you're Jewish, you'll be judged by the law of Moses. And if you're a Gentile, you'll be judged by the law written in your conscience. But all of humanity will be held accountable. Now, let me speak directly to those of you in the church who are Jewish. If you identify as a Jew, examine yourself. Are you a hypocrite? You who have every reason to boast in your advantages, you have God's law, you know his will, you're confident in your knowledge and your wisdom, you're always ready to correct and teach others, but do you teach yourselves? Have you looked in the mirror lately? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you don't live it out. And because of your hypocrisy, the Gentile world blasphemes the name of Yahweh. Hear me on this. The sign of the covenant that God has given you, your circumcision, it's worthless if you don't keep the law. If you live in disobedience, you're no better than any uncircumcised pagan. In fact, if an uncircumcised Gentile was found to have kept the law, he'd be able to judge you. Ask yourself, am I really a Jew? Am I really a Jew? I'm not talking about your circumcision or your bloodline. I'm talking about your heart. Is it right with God? A Jew is a man or a woman who's not just a descendant of Abraham, but who's a child of God in the heart, who's been changed on the inside by God's Spirit. That person seeks the praise of God, not from people. Now, you might ask, if that's true, well, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? And the answer is so many advantages. First and foremost, we were entrusted with the very oracles of God. Now, I know it's a fact that many Jews have been unfaithful to that revealed word, but that doesn't make God unfaithful, not in the least. Even if every human being was a liar, God would still be true. Now, a fool might say this, well, good, our sinfulness shows how righteous God is. And if that's true, why would God condemn me? By sinning, I'm just highlighting how great he is. What a stupid argument. Anyone who tries that deserves to be condemned. So let me pose this question. In God's eyes, are we Jews any better than everyone else? Not at all. Not at all. Because all of humanity is bound by the law of sin. And the psalmist has already told us in the scriptures, there is not one human being who is righteous. Not one Jew, not one Gentile. 
None of us seeks after God. We've all turned away to pursue our sin. Not one of us does good. And every part of us has been totally corrupted. And so listen carefully. This is key. Because we are totally depraved from top to bottom, the law can never make any of us right before God. Never. All it can do is show us how very sinful we are. So the bad news is pretty bad, isn't it? It's bad. Now, I'm not going to leave you with the bad news, friends. Let's move on to the good news by opening up the book of salvation. It's here where we're going to find the answer to the question, how has God... Back one, thank you. It's here that we're going to answer the question, how has God provided the remedy for our greatest need, our sin? Well, hear me now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has now been revealed in the gospel. Apart from the law. It's as simple as this. The righteousness of God is obtained by faith, by simply believing in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember this. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us. We've all fallen way short of God's standard. But this is the good news. To demonstrate His righteousness, God offered up the blood of His Son as an atoning sacrifice. And now, by His grace alone, He justifies us freely through the redemption that's offered through Christ Jesus. Freely. Focus on that word freely. It means that justification is a gift from beginning to end. Any good works that we can point to are completely excluded so that none of us will ever have a reason to boast in who we are or what we've done. How can we possibly boast if our acquittal in God's sight comes to us as a gift? So we're made right with God through faith alone. And by the way, that's true of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, allow, allow me to share an illustration. This is particularly for those of you who are Jewish. Let's talk about Abraham. We all know Abraham, right? How was he saved? Was he justified by his works? Absolutely not. Moses tells us in Genesis 15 that Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him. Credited to his account as what? Righteousness. In other words, it was by his belief in God's promises that he was justified. Think about this. When people work for something, their wages aren't a gift. They've earned it. But God operates differently. He credits us with righteousness, not because of our works, but because we trust in him. That's what Abraham discovered so long ago, and it's still true today. Now, keep in mind that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So he, he couldn't have been saved by that circumcision. And therefore, he's the father of all who follow his example of faith, including, are you ready for it? Uncircumcised Gentiles. Yes, he's the father of all who believe. That's what it's meant when the scriptures say that God promised him, I've made you the father of many nations. Do you remember how Abraham kept believing? Even when his body was giving out at the age of 100 and Sarah, his wife, seemed to be way too old to give birth, Abraham never wavered in his belief that God would be faithful to his promise. Friends, that story, that story of Abraham's faith wasn't just for his benefit, but for ours too. This is how we can know that we too will be counted righteous in God's sight by simply believing in God who raised Jesus from the dead. He, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins, but he was raised to life in order to make us righteous before God. And that means amazing news for us. Because of what Jesus has done for us, by faith we have peace with God. We've received the reconciliation. 
And because we have that peace, we can now have peace in this world. We can even rejoice in all the trials that life brings to us. Can you believe that? Because we have peace with God, we can rejoice in trials. How is that? Because we know those trials come for our benefit. Trials and suffering produce in us all kinds of things. Endurance and strength of character and a confident hope that will never disappoint. And how can we ever be disappointed when we discover how deep God's love is for us? For listen to this, when we were utterly helpless, Christ died for us. How many of you would be willing to die in the place of a good man? Maybe some of you would, but catch this, Christ took our place and died in our stead when we were far from good. In fact, when we were full of depravity and sin and rebellion. That, my friends, is true love. And let me go back for a moment for the sake of my Gentile friends. If you don't like Abraham as an example, let's go back in time, back to the garden. When Adam fell, sin and death were introduced into the created order. And death spread to every single human being. Why? Because we all sin. Can we be honest about that? In fact, we can't not sin. It's now who we are. It's rooted deeply in our DNA. Now, Adam serves as a type for us or a symbol, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the one yet to come, a second Adam, so to speak. But folks, there's a huge difference between Adam's sin and what Christ provides for us. The first Adam failed. The second Adam did not. What did Adam bring? A reign of death. Because one man sinned, all became sinners. But what has Christ brought? The gift of life. And because one man obeyed, the many will be made righteous. Here's how God works. And this may be hard for you to understand, but listen carefully. The law was given so that sin would actually increase. Let me say that again. The law was given so that sin would increase. It was given so that all men would look and see their desperate condition. But here's more good news. Wherever sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. Amen? So, we've faced the bad news. And we've heard the good news about God's remedy for sin in Jesus Christ. Now, where do we need to go? To the book of sanctification. As we begin to to grasp how we can grow in this grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. As I write this letter, I hope each one of you has taken a hold of the grace of God by faith. And if so, let's talk about sanctification. Now just because grace abounds wherever sin increases doesn't mean we should go on sinning. That's terrible logic. Friend, you've died to sin. How can you continue it any longer? Have you forgotten that when you were baptized, you were knighted to Christ in his death? You died and you were buried with him. And so now, just as he was raised from the dead, you too have been raised to newness of life for his glory. So how can you live in sin any longer? Here's an amazing theological truth. Your old sinful self was actually crucified with Christ so that your body of sin would be cast off and the power that sin had over you would be forever broken. Friends, you're no longer a slave to sin. The power's been broken. For when you died with Christ, you were set free forever. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him forever. We can be sure of this because Christ has been raised from the dead. And death no longer has any power over him, nor will it have any power over us. Now, here's how we apply that truth. From this point forward, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Friends, do not let sin reign over you. 
Do not let it control you, the way you live, the choices you make. Stop presenting your bodies to sin in unrighteousness. But as those alive in Christ do the opposite, every single day, present your bodies to him in pure and holy ways, remembering that you now have a new master. This is a true statement. Whomever you choose to obey, you're a slave to that person. Isn't that true? You can be a slave to sin, but that's going to lead to death. Or you can be a slave to obedience, and that's going to lead to righteousness. Choose this day whom you will serve. But praise God, I know that once you were slaves to sin, but now a change has come. Now you're slaves to righteous living. And I know that this will lead to even greater sanctification in the future. For listen to this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now this raises the question, the issue of the law of Moses, a complex issue. Question, are we still bound to the law? Are we? Let's answer by using an illustration from real life. When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband, but only as long as he lives. If he dies, she's no longer, no longer under obligation to the law of marriage. So listen, friends, you died to your obligation to the law when you died with Christ. I'll say it again. You died to your obligation to the law when you died with Christ. When you were under the control of your old nature, the law aroused all kinds of sinful desires at work within you and it led to death, but that is not you any longer. Now you've been freed from the law and its power. Now you can serve God, not in the old way of the letter, as if on tablets of stone, but now you can serve God in a new way, by the Spirit. Now am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Absolutely not. In fact, the law was incredibly important and useful to us. It showed us what sin is. That's what its purpose is, to show us our sin. There was a time when I wasn't living under the law, but once I came under it, the power of sin came to life in me, and it destroyed me. So listen to this. I've discerned this very shocking principle in my life. The very law that was supposed to give me life brought me death. Sin within me took advantage of God's command. And it deceived me. Think of it. Sin actually took God's command and it destroyed me. And yet I'll say it again. This does not mean that the law itself is sinful. Quite the contrary. It's from God. Therefore, it is holy and righteous and good. It was my sin, not the law that caused me to die. It was my sin. To be honest, the problem has always been me. The problem has always been me not God's command. I'm fleshly, a child of Adam, born into slavery to sin. So even when I tried to do good, I would end up doing the very things I hate. It's the sin dwelling in me. There's nothing good in my flesh. Even when I was willing to do good, I couldn't pull off the doing of that good. And the very things I didn't want to do, I'd end up doing anyway. And so here's the principle I found. As much as I loved God's law as a Jew, there was a stronger power within me waging war against my mind and taking me prisoner as a slave to sin. What a wretched man. I needed to be set free. Well, praise be to God. He's delivered me from this body of death. Amen? So let this be known. Let this be known from the to the ends of the earth, for those who are found in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. The law, 
weakened by the power of the flesh, could never have saved us. So God did for us what the law couldn't do. He sent his own son to earth in a human body just like ours, a body that would serve as an offering for sin so that the requirement of the law would be satisfied on our behalf. Is that not amazing? And so now we walk according to the spirit, not the flesh. Brothers and sisters, hear this. You are no longer obligated to do what your fleshly nature urges you to do. You're not bound to it any longer. Your obligation now is to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, listen to this, that means you're a child of God. You can cry out, Abba, Father, because you've been adopted into his family. And if you're family, that means something even greater. You are an heir. Did you hear that? You're an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. What an inheritance we have. Everything is yours in him. Can you imagine that? Now, I don't want to mislead you. Being an heir and having all these things doesn't mean that that we'll be without trouble in this world. In fact, only those who share in the sufferings of Christ will be glorified with him. But listen, any amount of suffering we endure in this life cannot and will never compare with the glory that we'll see in heaven someday. In the meantime, I know that life is hard. In the meantime, everything is still under God's curse, including the creation, which groans and suffers as if in childbirth. But with eager hope, it looks forward to the day when it will join the children of God in glorious freedom from all death and all decay. And we too groan in these bodies of ours, don't we? We groan all day long, waiting the completion of our adoption as sons and daughters and our freedom from sin and our freedom from this suffering. And as we wait for that glorious day, we've been given another gift from God, the Holy Spirit, who helps us in our weakness. Isn't that good news? The fact is, because of our limited vision and our lack of understanding, we really don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit prays with us. He actually intercedes for us in ways that transcend our human words. And he pleads for us in complete agreement with God's will. How blessed are we to have a friend like that within us? Let this statement give you great peace and hope. This is so important. God has promised that he will cause all things to work together for your good. Even the hard things of life, all things will work together for your good. How can we know that that's true? Because he's loved you. Because God has loved you from before the foundations of the world were laid. And because he's chosen you to be conformed to the image of his son. And having chosen you, he's also called you and drawn you to himself. And if he's called you, then he's also justified you. And if you're justified right now as you sit here, you are declared righteous in God's sight. And if you're justified, then take this to the bank as well. He will glorify you as well. What can we possibly say about things this wonderful? If God is for us, who who can ever be against us? And since he's given us his own son, won't he give us everything else that we could ever possibly need? Is there anything that could possibly separate us from this deep of a love? Trouble, tragedy, persecution, hunger, danger or threat of death? It's not even possible. In him, we overwhelmingly conquer all of those things. And I'm so convinced that nothing, not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not things present, not things to come, not height nor depth, nor any created thing can or will ever separate us 
from the love of God in Christ. Now, having shared all those beautiful things, we need to pause for a moment and talk about some really weighty matters, some very difficult truths. I want us to dive into the book of sovereignty to see how God rules over this world, to see how he rules over all types of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. Let me start this conversation by saying this. My heart breaks for my Jewish brothers and sisters, so much so that I wish that I myself could be cut off from God for their sake, if only that would lead to their salvation. After all, they are Israel, God's chosen people. Theirs is the covenants and the law and the temple and the promises and the patriarchs. But I know that most Jews today have rejected Christ. Now here's the question. Does that mean that the word of God has failed concerning them? Absolutely not. Listen, being physical descendants of Abraham has never saved anybody. The true children of God don't come by way of the flesh. They're saved only through the promise of God. Take Isaac, for example. He was the child of the promise, not Ishmael. And after Isaac married Rebekah, she conceived twins, but only one of those twins would be a child of promise. And before the two boys could do anything, either good or bad, it was confirmed that the older Esau would serve the younger, Jacob. And so the question is often asked, why would God love Jacob and reject Esau? And the answer is simple, so that God's purpose and election would stand. So that his purpose and election would stand, not because of any works on their part, but simply due to the choice and the call of God who is sovereign over all. Is that a hard truth? It is. But do we have grounds then to say that God is somehow unjust in that? Absolutely not. A long time ago, God said to Moses, I will show mercy to whomever I choose, and I will have compassion on whomever I wish. Is this not God's right? as creator and ruler? Salvation does not depend upon the will of a man or even the doing of a man. It's all according to God's mercy. And by the way, he also has another right, not just to show mercy, but to harden the hearts of those that he chooses as well. Now again, you might object to that. You might say, well, then why does God blame people for not responding? Let me ask you a question. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you really think you have the platform to argue with Almighty God? How does the creature find the chutzpah to ask the creator why he does what he does? When a potter takes a lump of clay to make two jars, and he makes one extraordinary and the other common, doesn't he have a right to do that? Under God's sovereign rule, there are among humanity two types of jars then, vessels of wrath And vessels of mercy. What would you say then if God, rather than just demonstrating his immediate power over his vessels of wrath, instead endured their rebellion with great patience? And what if I told you that he does that in order to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on the vessels of his mercy? Would it shock you to find out that many of those vessels of mercy that God has fashioned for his purposes are Gentiles? Would that shock you? Have you not remembered what Hosea said? He said, those who are not my people, I will now call my people. In fact, they will be called sons of the living God. And do you not remember what Isaiah says about the remnant of Israel being saved? Only a remnant. 
See, the ways of God are always contrary to the wisdom of man, aren't they? Listen to this. The Gentiles, who were never looking for God, they found him by faith. And the Jews, who are constantly striving for God, they missed him completely. Why? Because they were striving according to their works and not by faith. And so they stumbled over Jesus, the stumbling stone. The very stone that God himself laid in Zion for them to stumble over. Gosh, I have to admit this is really hard for me. The longing of my heart is that Israel would be saved. After all, I know that they are incredibly zealous for God. It's just a misdirected zeal. It's a zeal without knowledge, without truth. They cling so desperately to their own path of righteousness, but it will never get them where they want to go. They simply refuse to submit to God's way. Oh, but the truth is so close to them, right? It's so close. It's right there. If they would just confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, they would be saved. And we know that truth from the scripture. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile. But here's the thing. How can they call on him if they haven't heard the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel if someone isn't sent to preach the good news to them? But I ask this question, and this is hard. Have the people of Israel heard the message? Yeah, they have. The gospel's gone forth to them. They've heard it. There is no excuse. Well, but maybe they didn't understand. No, they understood. Friends, this is all part of God's plan for the nations. Isaiah told us this would happen. Israel would be made jealous by a people who are not a nation. The Gentiles, Isaiah said, will find God in spite of themselves. And what of Israel? The gospel will reach their ears, but it's prophesied they will continue to be stubborn and disobedient and rebellious. This is not a surprise, according to Scripture. Now, here's the big question. Does that mean that God has permanently rejected Israel? Absolutely not. May it never be. Do you not remember the story of Elijah, how he complained to God about the people of Israel, that he was the only faithful one left? And of course, God set him straight. He said, get up, Elijah. You're not alone. I've kept for myself thousands of true believers, so get over yourself. Here's an important truth and an everlasting promise from God. He will always maintain a believing remnant of Israel. Always. Not because they do good things, not because they're worthy, but because of his gracious choice. And so here's the bottom line concerning Israel. As a whole, they've not obtained the righteousness of God. They've not obtained it. Now, don't get me wrong, the elect have, but the rest have not. In fact, God has hardened the rest. He's given them a spirit of stupor. He's given them eyes that can't see and ears that will not listen. Again, this is God's sovereign plan. And again, I have to make this clear so that nobody misunderstands. This does not mean that Israel has stumbled beyond recovery. They have a future. Listen carefully. I'll disclose to you a mystery that's been revealed to me. This is a mystery. God has a great plan in causing this hardening in Israel because what he's done by that is open the door to salvation for Gentiles. The sin and failure of the Jews, catch this, has led to riches for the world. This is God's plan. Now, having said that, let me address you Gentiles now. Pay close attention. Since the patriarchs of Israel are set apart by God, so are their descendants. And because the roots of Abraham's tree are considered holy, so are the branches. 
So don't be arrogant and look down your nose at the Jews. Yeah, I know that you're now the majority party in the church there in Rome, but don't misunderstand God's intentions in this. You have no natural right to be part of Abraham's tree. You're a wild olive shoot that's been grafted into this beautifully cultivated tree. Are you grateful for that? Or have you become conceited? Yeah, some of the branches have been broken off that tree, but that was done to make room for you. So recognize the high cost of it and humble yourself. Behold God's kindness towards you and his severity towards the others. Does that not make you tremble? The root of Israel supports you. Never forget that. It's not the other way around, so watch yourself closely. Now here's the rest of the mystery. This hardening that's come over Israel, it's only partial and it's only temporary. It's not forever. Which begs the question, when is it going to end? Here's the answer. When the full number of Gentiles chosen by God has been saved. And in that day, when the full number has come in, God will lift the hardening from the heart of Israel and he will take away the veil from her eyes and Jesus himself will come back. He will come out of the heavenly Zion and when the Jews see their Messiah whom they've pierced, they will weep and they will mourn and they will repent and there will be a great outpouring of salvation throughout the land. In that day, their rejection will become acceptance and their failure will turn into joyful victory. And as the prophecies of the Old Testament say, they will come to pass, it will be his life from the dead. This is what God declared through his prophet Ezekiel when God showed him a valley full of dry bones, dusty and dead. And what did the Lord ask Ezekiel? He said, son of man, can these bones come to life? Hear from the prophecy. God said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Hear this now. In that day, my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Jeremiah says something similar. Behold, I will gather my people out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Behold, Jeremiah says, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, 
Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. My Gentile brothers, hear this. This will all come to pass because God still loves his people Israel. And he will be faithful to every promise that he's given to the patriarchs. To forgive their sins and bring them back to spiritual life. To be their God forever and to plant them in the land both safely and securely. To put the Holy Spirit within them and make them an obedient people forever. To set a sanctuary in the land and to dwell in their midst in the form of an eternal Davidic king. One who will rule not just Israel but the entire world. Friends, these gifts that God has given to Israel, the calling that they've received, they're irrevocable. They can never be revoked. They can never be withdrawn. They are binding and everlasting. Look at how God has orchestrated all of this. Step back and be amazed at his sovereign rule. Do you see how he's reigned over all men and over all of human history? Once the Gentiles lived without any knowledge of God, but when Israel fell away due to unbelief, God turned his mercy towards the Gentiles. And soon the Gentile world will likewise fall into unbelief. And when that happens, Israel will come back once again front and center in God's plan. And they will be shown mercy. Here's the bottom line. God has enclosed all kinds of men, both Jews and Gentiles, in disobedience for one singular purpose. And here it is. So that he may show mercy to all kinds of men, both Jew and Gentile. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Pray with me. Father, what a powerful letter that you have written. You have written your words through the Apostle Paul. So complex, so deep, so rich, and so much truth, Lord. It's like a, it's like a giant truth bomb in our faces about how sovereign you are, how you have been in control of all things from the foundations of the world until this day, and how everything in the future, God, will be according to your word. Lord, I, I confess that I, I don't understand everything. I confess that sometimes these truths are hard. But I thank you, God, that your spirit teaches me and comforts me and helps me to understand that all things that you give us are good because you're good and you're kind. And Lord, it reminds us that, that we have done nothing to earn your love Nothing to earn salvation. You have simply been merciful to us. You have had compassion on us. So Lord, as we, as we step back and look at these 11 chapters in Romans, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters, that we'd be greatly humbled by it. That it would move us, Lord, to, to know you deeper, to know your word more, to worship you with all of our lives. Lord, do a great work in us because of what you've told us in your word. Thank you for 
the book of Romans. And I pray, Lord, beginning next week as we dive into chapter 12, that you will continue to guide us into practical truth. It's all for you, God. We, we exist for you and for you alone. And we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.